0: The following is a lecture by Dwight A. Pryor of the Center for Judaic Christian Studies, a ministry renewing the Christian mind by restoring to the Church its lost Hebraic heritage. This material is copyrighted with all rights reserved. For more information about Dr. Pryor's ministry, please visit our website, jcstudies.com, or call us at 937. 937- Thank you, and Shalom. Well, I want to take up the important and exciting subject of Romans chapter 3. In our continuing study, we're at the pivotal chapter that's the principal text of all Protestant Reformation, Romans chapter 3. Indeed, Romans chapter 3 is considered to be, by many, the heart of the Book of Romans. Remembering the context of chapter 1 and chapter 2, the flow of the argument has come to the point now, after critiquing his fellow Jews, And remember, he does so from within Judaism, not as someone now standing outside of it. He does so in the prophetic mode. Then the question that Paul's going to take up here, which could naturally flow from the critique he's just given in chapter 2, and that is the question, well, if Israel has failed, has God failed? God's the one who elected Israel by his grace and covenant loyalty, redeemed them from Egypt, the slavery, gave unto them the gift of the, holy, uh, of the Torah written by the Holy Spirit. And yet, in Paul's prophetic revelation, Israel has failed. Does this mean God has failed? Israel has failed to be the light to the nation, that God intended to the nations, failed to be the source of blessing of all nations, and the very Torah given for life, pointing to life, showing the way to life, has in fact become the Torah of judgment, the very thing that will find Israel guilty for her sin. So is Israel's failure God's failure. And Paul is going to show us that we must be extraordinarily careful here that we not fall into what later became called the Martianite heresy. Martian was an influential church leader around the middle of the second century, 150, 160. His philosophical worldview was Gnostic. And Gnosticism holds to a radical dualism between the spiritual and the material. Everything material, including the world itself, is intrinsically evil, corrupt, fallen. Everything pure, good, and true is immaterial and spiritual. Gnosta Martian held, based on his exegesis of Paul's own writings that Jesus, Yeshua, actually came to rid us of the demiurge deity Jehovah. That Jehovah was the creator of this world, but the father of Jesus was not the same as Jehovah. As Adonai. Because the true God being spirit could not possibly involve himself in evil materiality and so Adonai Yudevahe was a lower level deity a demiurge a craftsman who made the world and then enslaved the world with his onerous law and yeshua came to free us from the curse of that law, to set us free from the judgment of Adonai, and to reveal to us the true Father. After all, he said to the Jewish people, no one has seen the Father except the Son. It's very easy, it would have been very easy for the Romans, given the influence of Greco-Roman philosophy, to hold to this kind of dualism and to reject the God of Israel as just one of many gods and not truly the Most High God, the Father of Jesus. And Paul's critique of Judaism, in fact, has been used in that very way by anti-Semites, by those who are anti-Judaic. But Paul's going to immediately come back and correct that balance. And not only will he vindicate God, the God of Israel, he will also vindicate the Torah of Israel and show that the real problem is not in the Torah, but in the flesh that prevents the Torah from achieving its goal. And that the real God, the God of Israel, has not failed, though Israel be fickle god has remained faithful and in fact god has demonstrated his covenant faithfulness his righteousness to israel in the person of his son because yeshua becomes representative israel he accomplishes that which israel is elected to do and he fulfills the torah given to israel The church fathers fortunately came to the defense of the faith and declared that martian theology was heretical that the creation was good and that the god of israel was in fact the father of our lord and savior yeshua but there is a tendency within christendom even in some circles today to think of the god of israel as somehow a tribal deity, somehow a lawgiver, whereas the father of Jesus somehow is full of grace and truth in the spirit and in his love would not dare want to enslave us with a law. We must be aware of this. This does violence to Paul. And from Paul's point of view, this tendency was already at work within Israel, within Rome and the church at Rome and so he immediately after the critique of Romans 2 immediately takes up the benefits the ongoing advantages of being an Israelite what advantage has the Jew and notice it begins with a then it's a continuing line of thought he's going right from the critique of two right into the affirmation of three. of course, in the time of Paul, there were no chapters and verses. This is an invention of the Middle Ages. But Paul here, it's a continuing line of thought. So lest now you think that because of the failure of Israel that we can dismiss Israel, we can reject the Torah, Paul turns right around and says, to the contrary, what is the advantage of the Jew? What is the benefit of circumcision? These, of course, are rhetorical questions because in fact, as he says in verse 2, the advantages are great in every way. So there's nothing intrinsically wrong with circumcision (coughs) and certainly (coughs) there's no inherent disadvantage in being an Israelite. In fact, there are many advantages. And notice now, when he talks about the privileges of Israel, these are all given in the present tense. He doesn't speak of it as something in the past. They had these advantages, but these advantages have now ended with Messiah. These are continuing privileges that they have, a very high calling, to the service of God. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very oracles of God. This is powerful language, of course, referring to the gift of Torah and the Holy Scripture. Torah is teaching. In the broad scope of that teaching and revelation, there are commandments, decrees, ordinances. There are narratives, there's poetry. There's what's called agadah as opposed to halakha. But on the whole, the Torah is that which points to, aims at, life in its fullness. And this has been given to Israel, not just as a gift, but as an equipping of them for their service as a kingdom of priests. Remember, you are a goi kadosh, he says to them at Sinai. He has redeemed them by his grace. Now he gives the revelation of his wisdom and his will. And it's given in order, on the one hand, to walk in continuing uninterrupted, unhindered fellowship with their Redeemer, with God in their midst. And on the other hand, it's given to equip them to serve him as priests on behalf of the nations and the world. It's a precious gift, the gift of Torah. And then he lists the other advantages. And he comes to this conclusion. But what shall we say then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God. Will it? In other words, of course not. In fact, may it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. And then he quotes Psalm 51, verse 4. Now, The main point Paul's making here is that God's faithfulness has not been nullified by Israel's unfaithfulness. God's faithfulness has not been nullified by Israel's unfaithfulness. And in verse 3, we find the occurrence of this word belief or faith in Greek pistis. In Hebrew, emunah. Pistis is more than just believing in something. It also has the connotation of being loyal to someone. In other words, it is both faith and faithfulness. And that's why I like to write this myself. In my own notes, I put faith slash fullness because it's both. It's faith and it's faithfulness. (coughs) Loyalty, persistence, fidelity. And here he's speaking in verse 3, of the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God. And here the term is pistis theou. The faith of God, the faithfulness of God is going to be a key theme of Romans 3. But the question becomes, given Israel's failure, how is God going to show himself faithful? What will he do? How can he do it, given Israel's failure? Paul cites Psalm 51 verse 4. And if you go look at Psalm 51, you'll discover that this is the Psalm of David. he's speaking of his repentance after the sin with Bathsheba. In other words, it speaks of repentance. It speaks of being given a new heart. Renew in me, O Lord. In other words, it's using new covenant language. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Renew me. Forgive me. I've sinned against you. It's not a coincidence that Paul cites this psalm. And remember now, we've already given you the principle that when Paul cites a scripture, it's not as a proof text. It's referring to the whole context of that psalm and the themes that are associated with that context. In verse 9, Well, before we get to nine, let's just look quickly at five and six. Our unrighteousness, our unfaithfulness, speaking of Israel, Paul incorporates himself within Israel, of course. Our lack of faithfulness to the covenant. Somehow, how is God going to demonstrate his righteousness? And then, of course, he takes up this question that I mentioned before, this tension of God, on the one hand, being an impartial judge. He must judge righteously, which means impartially, and thereby find Israel guilty. On the other hand, he's a God who abounds in chesed, in grace and steadfast loyalty to the covenant with Israel. And so how is he going to, on the one hand, exercise his wrath against Israel's sin, and on the other hand, exercise his covenant loyalty to Israel as the descendants of Abraham? This is the tension Paul is wrestling with. And in verse 9, he says, What shall we say then? Are we, we Jewish people, better than the Gentiles? No, not at all. Because he's just demonstrated in verse 8 that God is going to judge even Israel justly. And in fact, when he does so, as he says in verse 9, we'll discover that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the judgment of sin. All are under the judgment of sin. Notice verse 19. We know that whatever the Torah says, it speaks to those who are under the Torah, or literally here in the Greek it says, in the Torah, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become acceptable to God. Because by works of the law, the ergonamu, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. For through the Torah comes the very knowledge of sin. So Paul here in verse 9, which is going to reinforce in verse 19, is that all alike, both Jew and Greek, stand under God's just condemnation. In other words, stand under God's wrath against sin. No one is justified just by having the Torah, being the possessors of it, and having the privileges of Israel. Indeed, as he's going to argue in verse 9, in some manner that he'll expand upon, the very possession of the Torah is that which clearly identifies your transgression as sin. And therefore will even more definitively prove God's justice in judging that sin. So rather than the Torah having availed Israel in overcoming sin, it has become instead the judgment of their sin. Sin, of course, here is the idea of missing the mark, of missing the divine intent for the fullness of life. But for Paul, sin is more than just individual failures. Sin is a power at work in the fallen world. And that power has to be addressed. So the point Paul is making here is quite clear. In chapter 2, he critiques his fellow Jewish brethren. He comes right back and says, wait a minute, don't go too far with this. Remember, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with circumcision. In fact, there's much advantage the Jew has, and the greatest advantage is the gift of God's Torah. And then he turns right back around, and then says, "However, even the giving of that gift has also now will also now be the basis for just judgment against those who have the Torah." So the bottom line is, we all stand in need of deliverance. We all stand in need of a Redeemer to get us out of the Egypt of sin, death, and destruction, and judgment. Jew and Greek stand equally condemned. The Greek stands condemned by the, the law of God in their hearts. The Jew stands condemned by the Torah God has given them. And he cites, then, a number of scriptures from the Psalms. And the sequence here is not haphazard or accidental. And if you go back and look at these scriptures, I'll give them to you. And you read them through in sequence, in some of the context, (coughs) it'll greatly reinforce Paul's point. First of all, the opening scripture, is a combination of Psalm 14, verses one through three. I'm referring to verses 10 through 12 here of Romans three. It's a reference to Psalm 14, verses one through three, 53, verses one through three, and Ecclesiastes 7:20. Verse 15 is a citation of Psalm five nine. And Psalm 140, verse 3. Verse 14 is a citation of Psalm 107. 10, 10 7. 14. 15 and 16 and 17 are a citation of Isaiah 59 verses 7 through 8. And verse 18 is a citation of Psalm 36, verse 1. I don't have the time to take you through all those psalms. But in fact, the sequence is not haphazard. Paul, in his brilliant rabbinic mind, is putting together scriptures. And to the Jewish mind, at this point, he's speaking to his fellow Jewish brethren. The impact of these songs is quite decisive and the context of them is quite decisive now notice verse 20 19 and 20 the torah and for those in the torah the torah has effect has the consequence to the center center of showing them condemned And so, Paul says, their mouth may be closed. In other words, you have no basis for boasting. And along with the rest of the world, you shall be held accountable for your deeds. Because, verse 20, by the works of the law, no one, and here the word flesh is used in the more traditional Hebraic sense of flesh and blood, just meaning people, No one here is going to find themselves declared justified at the judgment of God on the basis of the badges of covenantal status, the works of the law. To the contrary, the very Torah that the works of the law point to is that which gives us our very knowledge of sin and therefore we have no excuse for our sin now we've laid the foundation for this so i'm not going to elaborate extensively but it's so critical to understand this because it is the classic misrepresentation that is at the very heart of the Protestant theological analysis of Romans. And that is this, that works of the law, Ma'asei torah the Ergonamu in the Greek, is not works righteousness. It's not earning your salvation by your works. It's not legalism. Paul has no need to critique legalism. Even the Jewish sages do that. Works of the law, I recommend that when you read it, you always put quotes around it works of the law, quote-unquote, because Paul's using it as a technical term. I've given you another example of Paul doing that. There are times when he uses the word flesh, sarks, and you need to put quotes around it because here it doesn't refer just to the natural body. It refers to the sinful nature within you. So the flesh, is what has prevented the Torah from accomplishing its purposes, but the flesh, quote-unquote. The same with works of the law. Professor Sanders decisively documented that the best of rabbinic Judaism never taught That you earn your salvation, you earn the grace of God by your performance of commandments, by your doing of pious deeds. There's no way one can possibly win God's favor, God's grace, God's salvation and redemption based on one's performance. Because we all shall fall short of the mark that he sets for us. And Israel at Mount Sinai is the classic example, as we've already mentioned. The very moment of the giving of that precious gift, they fall in to the worst sin of their history. So the problem is dramatically demonstrated at that decisive place in Jewish history. All fall short. But works of the law is a technical term that means once you have been elected to the covenant by God's grace, then the doing of these particular things becomes the symbol of the fact that you are walking in faithfulness to the gift of the covenant. They're indicative of of covenant faithfulness on your part. When God redeemed, saved Israel out of Egypt, it was not because of any merits of Israel in Egypt. What did they do that earned God's salvation? Effectively, they had forgotten their God. God redeemed them by His grace, His chesed, because he had made promises to their fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So by God's grace, he comes and redeems them. Now they're redeemed. He invites them to renew the covenant with him. And in effect, like a bridegroom with a bride, he reads the Ketubah, the 10 commandments, the 10 words. And Israel, the bride has to effectively say, we do we take you as our beloved, we enter into this covenant. And they did that. and Ishma, we will do and hear all that you say. We will be your people, you will be our God. And then God gives extended teaching and instruction as to how they, now set apart for his service, must walk in holiness if they're going to have unhindered intimacy and fellowship with the God who is holy. Be ye holy, for I am holy. God's not being difficult or onerous. In fact, he's being passionate. He wants that intimacy with Israel. He wants that fellowship. That's the reason he brought them out of Egypt, was to get them to himself, so he could dwell in their midst. But if they're going to be near him, with him, in him, they have to be holy. Because if they walk in rebellion, iniquity, in sin, that will separate them from his presence. He knows they're going to fall short of the mark, so even within the Torah, he gives them directions for atoning sacrifices. That when the fellowship, the intimacy is broken, here are steps you can take that will effectively represent your repentance so we can come back into intimacy again. But now that you're in covenant relationship with me, you have obligations, Israel. My faithfulness to you in redeeming and saving you now summons you to faithfulness to me. And the primary visual indicators of your covenant faithfulness to me will be circumcision, kashrut, and the Sabbath. These are signs, the very word God uses of them. These are the things that mark you out. They have the multi-purpose effect of setting you apart from the nations and setting you unto me. And so they become... Tremendously important as indicators of your continuing covenant faithfulness to me. That's the works of the law. But in the very process of these things becoming so distinctive, so symbolic, in the flesh of Israel, these things can also become a source of pride, of exclusivity we're in you're not and if you want to get in if you want to be part of the covenant people you have to come in like us and be us you have to become a jew and that means you have to become a proselyte symbolized by the ritual of circumcision among other things So. N.T. Wright uses this term, the badge of covenant membership. And I think it's very good. These works of the law, God-given and good in themselves, become in effect the badge, giving the indication that you, in fact, are covenant people. You're in the covenant community that God has redeemed and called to faithfulness. But the problem now that Paul is going to be addressing is that some think that because I've got the badge on, in fact, when the great judgment of God comes, I'm going to be declared justified. The badges will do for me what in myself I'm not doing. I'll have the indicators, but there's no reality. And Paul is turning the tables on that kind of spiritual arrogance and uh, lack of humility and saying, the very badges that you so treasure that speak of the Torah, do you not realize that that Torah at the great judgment, the eschaton, is going to be the very standard that's going to find you guilty? The very covenant and Torah that's meant for blessing, when there's disobedience, when you're walking in the sarks rather than in the spirit, will be the source of curses. Paul's arguing here very much within the Jewish frame of reference, within the prophetic mind. So when Paul says here at the beginning of chapter 3, By the works of the law, no one will be justified in God's sight. He's talking covenantally. He's talking forensically. Remember, we said both of these things go together. With justification, you've got covenantal language. You've also got legal language. The image is the great law court. And at that law court, when God judges you impartially he will declare you are justified or you are judged and Paul is saying just by having the works of the Torah these badges of covenant membership will not in fact elicit God's declaration of justification You get that? Very important. Indeed. If you call the works of the law, the Maaseh Torah, as your witnesses in the great law court at the end of time, these very witnesses will be the ones who will condemn you. You think? They're witnesses for the the defendant. And so you call them as favorable witnesses. And it turns out their witness is damning of you. This is what Paul is saying in effect. If you're going to hear the declaration of justify, of justification, if you're going to be declared to, in fact, be God's covenant people, It's not gonna be on the basis of having this, these badges of covenantal status. It's gonna be on some other basis, which he's going to take up. Now, one of the reasons that we can speak of this today with such clarity and conviction is because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Martin Luther did not have this advantage he was also himself an augustinian monk desperately trying to find a way to find a gracious god because he felt this this incredibly burdened conscience of never being able to satisfy a righteous god an impossible moral standard an ethical standard and despite his every effort always was painfully aware of the flesh in himself. He was also part of a religion, medieval Catholicism, in which in fact works righteousness, as we speak of it today, was rampant. You could buy God's favor. You could earn God's favor. Your forgiveness could be bought. And he protests that eventually, and rightly so. But given his worldview, when he reads this, and by the way, he read Paul's letter in Latin. He's reading the Latin here. And in Latin, the emphasis upon justice is even more so than in the Greek And in the Hebrew background. And so every one of us is part of our time. He was part of his time. And he rightly protested certain things. And he rightly perceived some great truths. That our election, our salvation, our covenantal status is always done at God's initiative. Based on his mercy and his grace. We are saved by his grace. Not by our goodness. But his grace elicits our faith, and his grace has come to us embodied and demonstrated decisively in the faithfulness of Yeshua unto death on a cross. So when Luther and Calvin and subsequent Protestants have read this text, they're always seeing works of the law in terms of works righteousness.